Hey guys, Brian Jodis back with another episode of Pick Up the Six podcast. Before we get to our conversation today, huge shout out to a couple of great sponsors that make this show happen. And we love them. And I was just talking to our guest. We'll bring him in in a moment. He's talking about, man, I'm kind of jet lagged. I was traveling a bunch and I'm like, hey man, you need to get some One Nation coffee. Veteran owned and operated. Our boy, John Richards, former Navy EOD. Absolutely love him and his company because they're making great coffee that is roasted down just outside of Charleston, South Carolina, and they're doing it all uh, for great reasons. And their pickup line is we have your 6 a.m. with and when you're hanging out at pick up the six, it kind of fits. And so we'll ship some coffee off to our man uh, who's going to join us here in a moment. But go check them out. OneNationCoffee.com. Use the code PUT6 and you can save some cash on your caffeine just like that. So thanks to those guys. We drink it on the regular around here. And I've got to thank my friends at Amino Vital. Go to Amino-Vital.com. We just ran the Blue Ridge Relay this past weekend, and almost every dude in our van was putting that amino vital recovery right in the water bottle when we got done for those blockchain amino acids, for uh, that good carbohydrate, uh, for all those good things. So go to amino-vital.com, use that same code PUT6, and you can save some cash to get a little bit better and get that recovery done well. October 3rd and 4th, 1993, the Battle of Mogadishu. You might know it as Black Hawk Down. Yesterday, we replayed an archived episode of Pick Up the Six podcast with Jeff Struker, who was there for the battle. Today, we meet Jim Rooney, who 30 years ago today was a 20-year-old soldier smack dab in the middle of the two-day fight. I'm Brian Jodis, and this is Pick Up the Six podcast. Jim, an honor and a pleasure to be able to connect. Man, I'm thrilled to have you today. How are you? I'm doing great, Brian. Yeah, th- thanks for inviting me to this. Um, this was such a historic event so many years ago. And over the years, there have been a lot of efforts to remember it and and almost dissect it because mm. there's still very much unknown about where all the participants were on that battlefield. So it was chaotic. It was emotional. Um, and I'm glad to kind of, you know, discuss the feelings of that day. Yeah. The timing is right. Just apropos as we sit here today, we record on the 4th of October. So we are on the 30 year anniversary. And when you hit those milestone marks, right, 10 year, 20 year, 25, 30, I think maybe it gives us a little extra time. I think every year, I'm sure you kind of go back in time to that battle because what we need not forget is that 19 American soldiers lay on the battlefield on that day. Right. And so that's something that just, right. We keep for us here sort of in remembrance, Brad border sent me a note, great friend of the show. You guys have heard me mention him all the time said, Hey, Jim would be willing to do. I think it'd be great for you to have him on. And, and really, again, God sort of interceded with the timing of all that. Right. Cause that was like a week ago, he texted the two of us and I thought, wow, it'd be really neat if we go back in the archives right? Pull Jeff's episode out, which guys, if you haven't listened to it, it's fabulous. The story that he tells the, the, the level of, uh, of his just power and purpose through it. I'd highly recommend listening to these two back to back. If you have the chance to do that this week and Jim and I got on the phone two days ago, I said, can we make this happen? Like Wednesday brother. And he's like, sure, man, I'd be happy to do that. So that shows you a little bit of character of my man here, which is incredible. But yeah, man, those, those anniversaries, right. You know, 30 years, a big, that's a big number since that point. And I don't know if, if, uh, if it feels like it's been 30 or if sometimes you blink and you feel like it was yesterday. I, I tell you, I, I don't normally think about it throughout the year. Um, maybe an event will arise where I, I, I maybe connect the dots or there's a parallel thought, but the, the real thought comes in every third and fourth of October, because obviously we all have networks of friends and they reach out. And so I might not speak to people for a year, but on the third and the fourth, if they were in that battle with me, I can guarantee I'm going to at least get a text saying, hey, brother, how you doing? Mm. Uh, that connection has been consistent over a 30 year period. And I would I would venture to guess that's the same for everyone that was there with me. Um, so it it's a long time. It does feel that time has passed, but it doesn't feel like 30 years. So I'll briefly mention this. Yesterday, I had the opportunity of being around a lot of the main assault force. They held a memorial uh, and it was it was surreal. It was emotional. It was special. 
uh, to hear everyone speak their perspective. And, and on that battlefield that day, there was there was nothing but chaos, but it was controlled chaos because there were so many professional soldiers. Um, the special operators that were involved were hands down the reason I became a special forces soldier. And I attribute a lot of my success to the mindset that they instilled in me, not by what they said to me, but what they showed to me. And what I saw in the streets of Mogadishu was nothing but heroism. I was humbled and fortunate to be around that uh, that large group of people that that fought so valiantly that day. Um, and 30 years had passed and we were still connecting the dots. Wow. So the most unique piece about that was we we were able to identify and record different locations on the battlefield that for 30 years had been assumed or unknown. That's that's a, it's utterly amazing. I mean, you guys are thrust into a two day battle and, and it's it's iconic, right? I mean, you think about sort of those battles that American soldiers are in and and maybe because the advent of film and all that. Right. It's able to sort of solidify that forever. I mean, Black Hawk Down is just it's a movie it's a film that people know. But you guys are thrust into just such extraordinary conditions right in that city in daylight like just a lot that happened jeff and i recount a lot of the details we'll we'll talk about some of them and then you're right you know it's like you know i've spoken to commander lippold about this who commanded the uss cole the day it was attacked he tells you before 9/11 there was 10/12/2000 which comes up in a few weeks and and it's the same thing right it's a lot of texts and and comments and 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 messages to to families that lost sailors that day that he still knows to this day right to other folks that were with him so having not been in that myself, I just, I, I've heard similar, right. From folks that are part of sort of those big moments like that. Look, every June 28th, we take a pause here and we talk about Red Wings and we talk about the three that were lost in the Hills, but then also everybody on that Chinook that went in as well. So you just, yeah, I can understand why that those sorts of outreach would happen. I'm, I'm so, I'm so glad um, uh, for you and just for, for your pals, your buddies to, to have that experience yesterday, right. To be able to, to do that together. And you're talking about boy connecting dots that you haven't been for years and it never goes away, nor should it. Right. Correct. Yeah. And, and an important piece is, and, and I'll kind of tell you my role on the battlefield. Um, but the important piece is we, and this is something that, that we'll spend the majority of the show talking about, because I want the listeners to understand that this is about transition and the struggles that every single one of us go through initially think we're okay, and then continue to revisit years later after transition. Yeah. And then everyone has a different perspective. So I feel that as long as we communicate with each other within our community, the military community, not just special operations, conventional, everyone, because everyone has a struggle and every one of us can help each other out. Not a single person can do this on their own without any support. And so we need to remain um, you know, in that pack and keep that pack mentality because we are pack driven. So my yeah. role just to let's do it, this, Jim, because here's what I want to do. I have an idea, right? Because I want to I want to sit on three important things. I want our listeners to kind of follow along with us. Three things. One, I actually want to go back to 18 year old Jim Rooney, because I want to hear about I know you were faced with a, a pretty big decision at 18 years old, right? I want to talk about that. I want to talk about your role in the battle. And then really, like you talked about that transition point. So you're 18 years old. And you got a choice to make. So take me back to that. Yeah. So I was actually 20 years old um, and uh, but still very much young and immature. And I was in my third year of college and, you know, I, I never grew up wanting to be a soldier. Uh, you know, so I, I served with a lot of folks that their family members had served in some capacity. And so they they had an understanding of the military. I did not have that. I did not have anyone in my family that would that served, uh, nor was I interested in serving. I was interested in partying and then, uh, you know, getting messed up. And I was very much a punk. Um, and and I say that because this is a very important piece of it. I didn't want to join the military, but I was a I was a drug dealer in college and I was dealing every kind of drug you can imagine. And I got arrested for the third time. And at this point, the judge said, you are a punk and I am going to you're you're not learning from your previous two arrests. So I got the ultimatum, join the army or go to jail. 
And honestly, the only reason I joined the army was because I was afraid of getting raped in prison. Um, and, you know, and, and people laugh about that. It's funny to hear about that now, but I was just a, a punk kid and I, I don't think I would survive. Had I not joined the military, I would either be in jail now or I would be six feet underground. Mm -hmm. So the military and the service, which turned into a 27 year, um, very grateful, uh, you know, experience saved my life in a lot of ways. Uh, so I joined the army and I just said, what, what's the, you know, what's the first thing I can do? And they said, Hey, 10th mountain. And I said, great. So that's what, that's what started me. And then without knowing I had just signed up to go to this historic battle because 10th mountain was in Somalia at the time. Yeah. Between that sort of pivotal life moment, right. Which is pretty incredible. And I'm just appreciate your candor in talking about it. I guess it's something I sought out. It's not sort of some heroic journey to the military. It's sort of like, bro, it's either this one or this one, like, okay, well, I'll take this one. It'll keep me out of, out of that. How long between sort of signing up, right? 10th mountain training, we're going to sort of skip a lot and fast forward, right? What's the timeline between all of that and three October, 1993, uh, you know, battle of Mogadishu. Yeah. So first off, when I, when I joined, um, I was still in the mindset of, I'm just trying to get the judge off my back. Right. I go to training. I got the snot kicked out of me. Um, and I said, this is what I need. This, this structure is going to save my life. So I, I don't know what happened, but some, someone, something intervened in my mental state and said, you better do this, um, or bad things are, are going to come. Uh, so that might've been a calling who knows. I, I often think back of that, but I think things happen for a reason. And I was put in this position, not just for me, but to be around everybody else. And so in, in whatever way, I hope that I fulfilled that, that prophecy, if it was, uh, to help them, um, proceed in life, however they're, they're supposed to. So I joined in, um, in late 91, and then went to basic training, came back. And at first I'd, I'd done the reserve thing. Cause I said, that's, that's minimal. I don't want to do anything fully committed. Cause I got to get back to, you know, partying and getting messed up. And then uh, I, I did one or two drills with the army reserves and said, this is, this is not what I need. I'm, I'm going to fall back into that dark hole. So that, then I went back to the MEP station the second time and said, no, put me back in active duty where I can't get away from this. So that was, that was sometime in 92. And then the end of 92, um, I, I, I forget when, but we'll say the fall of 92, I actually went to 10th mountain division and then went over to Somalia immediately. So picture this, Brian, zero tactical training. I get issued a weapon. I get issued some equipment. I don't even know. I don't even know what I'm doing. And then they say, fly over and meet your unit over in, in uh, Somalia. This is in 92. Mm -hmm. So I actually, deployed twice to Somalia, three times over my entire career. But uh, I, I go there, I'm there for a month. I do nothing. We're doing some patrols, no shots fired, no nothing. We go to the beach one day and I'm this young private who knows nothing. I take my shirt off and I'm thinking like movie style, let's get a tan. Well, I get a second degree burn all over my chest and arms. I come back, my squad leader gives me an article 15 for damaging government property. I get put on 45 days restriction and 45 days extra duty, and I got pay withheld. And this didn't happen until we redeployed back to the States. So that that deployment was not eventful. The only the only trouble I got into was getting a sunburn and getting an right. article. At that moment there, we get back to Fort Drum, and then I switch units, and the next unit is going to Somalia next. That's when we deployed. It was sometime early... Um, it was late July, early August of 1993. And that's when I was there from basically the beginning of August until the middle of December. It's it's an incredible path and way that those things sort of happen, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I think Jeff would tell you how that's orchestrated, right? If you went and asked him, he'd have his opinion probably in his camp is just the way that people get thrust into these, the sunburn story is pretty classic, right? Like you just... You don't know what you're getting yourself. It's not like uh, the North Carolina sun, I suppose. Maybe it's a little bit different. So now I'm in. Now I'm in Second Battalion, 14th Infantry, the Golden Dragons, and uh, and I'm uh, I'm back in Somalia, but this time it's for Operation 
Restore Hope. So there was Operation Restore Hope, then there was Operation Continue Hope, and then there was Operation Gothic Serpent. So in that order, that's kind of how it went. And we were there initially uh, prior to Task Force Ranger, um, and it was to, to keep the peace to allow the food to continue to flow from Unisom. So basically, they were trying to feed this this entire population. General Mohammed Farah Adid um, said, hey, that's power if we can control the food distribution. And so they started um, sabotaging the uh, the Pakistani and Unisom efforts to try and um, distribute food. And obviously, some, some of our allies were killed, and that initiated Task Force Ranger coming in. 10th Mountain was there in a, basically a peacekeeping capacity at first, which then turned into a police action, which then turned into a combat action. So it, it, it evolved as it got worse. Um, and so my role was I was a gunner on a Humvee armed with a Mark 19 and a backup as an M60 machine gun. And I was on a, a light-skinned um, Humvee turtleback with basically no armor. From your perspective, we can spend as much time, as little, as much as you want. What, what were those two days, right? Lead me up, if you can, right, yeah. to action on those two days. And then from your perspective, right? That's why I love to talk about is what you saw happen over the course of those then two days. Yeah, so prior to the 3rd and 4th of October, we had been in three or four other, I'd say, smaller engagements, uh, anywhere from two to four to six hours. And they were significant enough because you've got to remember, we were a peacetime army. So the only people that were doing real world missions might have been the special missions unit. Uh, but conventional army, 10th Mountain Division, we were not we were not expecting war. We were not prepared for war. Uh, so at at first, we, we were in a few engagements and there were rounds exchanged, uh, but they were small factions that we were fighting. And because I was a private, I, I wasn't really privy to kind of the, the geopolitical situation. All that happened after the fact as I started to become a more mature soldier. And then I tried to do my research and, and understand what I had been through. Because from my perspective, I'm a kid on a Humvee that's got bad guys shooting at me and I'm shooting back. Uh, that's about all I understood at that moment. You know, just protect my teammates, fire back. Um, and then, so as we led up to uh, the 3rd and 4th of October, we had already been in a few battles. We felt we had a good handle on at least small engagements with the enemy. We had no idea what we were about to encounter. No one did, I think, from every capacity. And I'll just, I'll I'll, I'll pause right here for a moment because it's important to know that no matter what level you shared as far as position on that battlefield, everyone shared the same emotions. And again, and again, it was true heroism what I saw from from every every turn. Um, but it didn't matter if you were a seasoned operator or a private in the 10th Mountain Division. We shared the same emotions, which was you are in the fight for your life. And we didn't have the logistical requirements we we would have liked to have had. We didn't have the technology we have today. So what you saw was guys fighting straight, pure out of loyalty to their teammates, and then the epitome of intestinal fortitude. It was really amazing to see. Um, so as we get into the 3rd and 4th, we'll start with the morning of the 3rd of October. Task Force Ranger decides to do a, a daylight raid. And they violate what they what they have said themselves as one of the one of the main violations that, you know, they they own the night. Why are they doing this during the day? They figured it would take one to two hours max. Um, so obviously that that planning has been digested and then lessons learned have been and created. And and they're 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 in a phenomenal place now because of a lot of the lessons learned that we all encountered from three and four October. 10th Mountain Division, my my battalion, 214 Infantry, was staged out of the University of Mogadishu. Uh, Task Force Ranger was staged out of the airfield uh, over by the seaport in Newport. And so we were staged on QRF in preparation for the mission. We were notified that they're doing a mission. That's all we were told. We weren't privy to the details. And again, even if my leadership was privy, I was a private that was not relayed down to me. So it was just load the trucks, have them staged in order of movement, and then be prepared if we get the call to go in and provide support. So we were the QRF prepared to launch if needed. 
And I, I think it was around maybe, I don't know, anywhere between noon and two in the afternoon. And I, I can't recall 30 years ago, what time of day it was. It was daylight mm-hmm. all and said, launch the QRF immediately. So we knew immediately that there was something sig- significant enough that they needed more support. We didn't understand the severity of the situation until we started rolling out and actually started being engaged ourselves. And I don't think anyone understood the severity of this until the morning of 4 October, when we actually had a moment to take a tactical pause and say, what just happened? I think everyone was in in almost a state of shock, like, what did we just go through? So we get the call. I remember running to my truck. Everything was loaded. My squad leader said, hey, we're heading out. Task Force Ranger needs support. And that was all I had. We're going to try and get into them. There's been a Black Hawk down. And I'm like, okay, that's all I knew. So he's yelling up to me from the TC seat. I'm in the gunner's uh, hatch. And that's all I knew. So from my perspective, I'm like, all right, just scan for bad guys. As we started to roll out, we went through this place called K4 Circle. And I noticed there were people in the street. And all of a sudden, it was eerily quiet. Mm. Here comes a convoy of gun trucks and five tons loaded with dismounts. And every the streets were as clear as like, like it was a town from Zombieland. And that's when you know you got this eerie feeling something bad's about to happen. And at that moment there, I was second vehicle in order of movement. We went, we started to go, we were going towards the crash site to provide support. Uh, we started getting ambushed from both sides of the street. And to put it in perspective, there's probably, I don't know, 10 feet on each side of the vehicle. So these streets are not wide. And you can imagine the volume of fire and the, the close proximity. Uh, and so you didn't have a chicken plate. You didn't have a cupola. You didn't have armor. You just, these, these Humvees look like Swiss cheese. The five tons were just shot to shot to shit. Um, we had guys hit cause they're just, they're sitting in the back and I'm a gunner. So I'm just picking left and right. And I'm engaging as best I can. And they're shooting, the Somalis are shooting from both sides. So they're a Polish ambush. They're shooting at each other. They don't care. But the volume of fire was so intense that we were all like taken back turned into bumper cars our vehicles get smashed into each other our antenna gets broke on my vehicle the vehicle in front of me the gunner gets shot multiple times he's down they put up another gunner he's shot and so we became the first vehicle in order moving moved to the end of this road we couldn't proceed any further they had established roadblocks of burning tires and then burning humvees that they had hit with rpgs so we stopped there and we continued to engage and it, there is no lull brian there is yeah. it is heavy volume of fire. Everyone's trying to communicate. We don't hear anything. We don't know our communications are down. And then all of a sudden time passes. And uh, my squad leader says, Jimmy, look behind you. Where, where is everyone? I look behind me because I'm so focused. I didn't pay attention to the surroundings. I look behind me and they, they, they had all gone. They caught the, you know, they made the net call to withdraw back to a position so they could find a different way into the crash site. We're out there by ourselves in this vehicle and now it started getting quiet. Now there's a lull in fire. And I'm like, this is crazy. So my Mark 19 jams, I pull up my M60 machine gun, put it on the bipod legs. Squad leader says, hey, the minute we crank up this truck, they're gonna, they're gonna come and you know, basically surround us. So he said, fire it up. And then Jimmy, you just point your gun in one direction and hold cyclic rate of fire. You gotta bust back through the roadblocks they just set up. My squad leader gets comms back up with our unit. And again, we're trying to get into the Rangers. We can't. Um, and so they say, hey, uh, make your way back. If you get hit, we'll come out and get you. We can't get out to get you. So they're, they're a couple miles down the road. Uh, and I remember that being eerie, like, how are we going to get through this? We're one vehicle. And who knows how many Somalis were, were moving in on us. So basically, the driver started up the truck and we started to head back. And we're smashing through these roadblocks and I'm just holding down the trigger on this M60 and just firing at, at everything that's firing back at me. And by the grace of God, not a single round hit my body, but the Humvee looked like Swiss cheese. We finally break through the third roadblock and then we reach the end. And we had a couple um, LNOs from um, uh, C Squadron there from uh, the unit. And they were they were helping us try and get into the to the crash site. So uh, 
one of the one of the guys comes up to me and he's like, hey, your sector fire is here and here. And so I, I was like, what just happened? Um, but basically, at that point, we knew we needed we had wounded. We we had an unsuccessful attempt at getting in to provide support uh, to the task force. So we fell back to what we call Newport, which was the port by the airfield. And then we grabbed everyone that could grab a gun, mechanics, cooks. You could grab a gun. You're coming out with us because we needed help. The Humvees were taking a beating. So there were uh, Pakistani APCs that were six-wheel APCs that were armor. And then there were two Malaysian M60A3 tanks. So our command, 10th Mountain Command, went up and said, we need this armor. They were reluctant. They said, no, this is an American fight. Words got heated. And then our command said, you're going to give us these. And there was some force uh, involved in that. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. They it will give you our, our vehicles, uh, but we need to leave our drivers in there. Fair enough. We don't know how to drive these things. So we loaded all our 10th Mountain guys in the back of these armored so APs. Now these guys are going to drive you, though. Yeah, That's they're crazy, gonna, man. Yeah. they Well, they didn't. Th this fight was significant. They didn't yeah. want any. And so we, uh, we gathered everyone we could, and we rolled back out and took a different route out. And at that point there is where the volume fire just significantly increased now darkness is starting to set in so now we're pulling out our nods and then we fought all through the night trying to get to each other and then the next morning we exfilled together to the pakistani stadium at around 8 a.m just i mean it's non-stop and it, it, it's a return to the right you're in it you're out you're back in i mean you guys were on the edge i mean i, I I got to think, and you're not thinking about this in the moment, but I got to think, boy, the odds are coming out of there. Absolutely. What you guys have been through. I, you know, I listened to Jeff Struker's email or uh, podcast and it was phenomenal because he, he had made a, a decision to say, I am prepared to die and I'm not afraid to die. I will tell you from my perspective, I did not have the faith that he had. I was not a very religious person. Um, I fully was expecting to die and I can't speak for anyone else. And I was, I was terrified. I was scared to death, but here's the difference, Brian. I, I was a young kid with zero tactical training. I had no skill, but when I watched some of the special operators come up to me in the middle of the battle and they say, how you doing son? As I'm engaging the enemy, um, and it was like a video game. They just kept popping out. And you you could look in 360 degrees and have an enemy combatant to shoot. It was insane, the odds against us. Uh, and they would, so I would say, I'm scared, right? You know, I was honest with my feelings. And, uh, and they said, you're doing it right, son. You're a lot safer shooting back at them than if you were to sit here and duck and cover. Mm. And, and that right there, I don't know who it was, but I might have met him yesterday at the at the uh, the whole Memorial Day. But that helped guide me into the special forces soldier I I became. And throughout my career, my 27 year career, I remember that moment of that operator saying that to me. And to this day, of all the engagements I was in in special forces, nothing has even come close to that. And I won't sit here and tell you that I'm some. I'm some person that's not afraid, but it helped to to ground me and keep me leveled. And I was able to think clearly in very chaotic situations after the fact. So I just remember when he said that, I don't know what right is, but I know that that dude that makes this look like a training event, and he was so smooth mm -hmm. in the most and scary situation, I'm going to take advice from this guy. His influence to me and all the younger soldiers on that battlefield and all of their influence was so powerful, more powerful than I think anyone realizes. Had we not had them there, I'm sure we all would have freaked out a little bit more because we weren't prepared for this volume of intensity. And then, like how can, I said, how can you be? How could how could you be? Exactly. And then I remember seeing certain certain situations that were just incredible. You know, there was a there was an MH6 pilot, Little Bird pilot, and I remember him landing. And it was, I remember seeing this maybe a block away from me. He was landing. And he was landing to provide support. And I don't know in what capacity, but he had his MP5K out the door and he was shooting as he was landing. While, hold on, hold on a minute. Can you, 
I need our listeners to really understand what you're telling me this guy was doing. Can mm-hmm. you, can you break that down a little bit more and just what yeah. was he actually doing? What firearm was he using the severity of it? Right. Cause like that sounds pretty incredible. Amazing. And actually that was brought up yesterday too. And I, I, I was like, yeah, I remember seeing that. Uh, so he, he was landing a helicopter. Uh, he's flying a helicopter, landing helicopter, uh, a little bird, an MH6 yeah. helicopter. Um, and, and that's what a lot of the assault force was on. Uh, so he, d- he did not have passengers at the time. It, I saw him land with about two feet of clearance on each side in this alley of the rotor blades, which was super impressive. But as he was landing, he was taking significant fire to the aircraft. So to counter that, he took his, his hand and stuck it out the door as he's using the collective to land this aircraft. And then he's firing his MP5K, uh, which is a, a small um, submachine gun, for those that don't know, which, which is impressive in itself. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, so that's, what, it's amazing. It was uh, incredible acts of heroism. I mean that. And I, I, I remember seeing it and I'm, I'm like, am I really seeing this? You know, whereas I'm just, I'm just, I'm a scared kid with no tactical training and I'm soaking in all of this around me. And all the while I'm trying to stay on my gun because there's no lull in fire. It was, it was pretty steady. There'd be lulls here and there. And then all of a sudden it would pick up. There'd be a, you know, a large volume of fire and then it would die down quietly. And normally it would quiet down when there was movement, um, and then when when obviously you you stirred up the hornet's nest, it would continue for as long as needed. And then what we all didn't realize is, you know, I'm fighting over here, but there's so many other internal fights that are happening. There were so many engagements happening all at once. And the uh, the amount of skill and professionalism, especially within the, the task force, was was hands down the, the one of the greatest things I've ever seen. So as we continue through the night, I can tell you, I, I wanted to, I wanted to duck and cover. I wanted to jump in a building. I wanted to hide. I wanted, because I was scared. I was just a scared kid with no training and say, there's no way I'm going to make it out of this. Um, we, we went through such incredible amounts of ammunition. Uh, I, I, you know, I mean, you don't even know like how you didn't run out of ammunition. Our trucks were so full that, and they were so empty by the time we were done um, unless you practice good fire discipline, you, I, I guarantee you could have been out of ammo in less than an hour. It was that insane. And I remember I had to, I had to take, I had to take a piss. And so I was like, I got to take a piss to my squad leader. And he's like, you're kidding me. Right. And there's no, there's not really a lull for you to do that. So he had to like, get up next to me, jump up in the turret and then, you know, continue firing as I jumped down and I'm taking a piss against this wall and rounds are hitting around me on the wall. And I'm like, this is how I'm going to go. I'm going to get shot while I'm taking a piss. <laughs> well, what's worse? I mean, you don't want to go with pee pants. No. You know what I mean? Like you had to make that decision in that moment. I'm, we joke about it a little bit. It's, it's rather incredible. It's just, you know, look, man, having had the conversation with Jeff, you guys go back and listen to it. You went back and listen to it. There's, there's just so many twists and turns in this. And even from the ammo, th- there's some sort of intervention that happens along. I mean, this the way this battle just, falls in the place, the length of it, everything that you guys go through, it's just rather incredible. At what point for you guys, does it, it, it does it culminate, right? Or is there, right? At what point does it sort of wrap up? Cause I mean, there's gotta be an, there's an end ish to this thing. So let's write, cause I do want to talk about, right. All the post, right. It's also amazing to me that that guy comes along, gives you that piece of advice Later, you spend time as a Green Beret. It's just influential in that moment. It's pretty incredible. It's not lost on me what happened there. But how's that How's that battle wrap up for you? Uh, so at some point, we, we were able to, to get accountability of most of the people that we wanted. And, and again, being a private, I didn't understand the details that the leadership was making uh, prior to moving. I do know that they were very adamant about, we will not leave anyone behind. And so the time that it took us to consolidate all the people, because we're scattered throughout so many different areas of the city and we're taking direction from aircraft and there's a delay. And in our communications, don't talk to the aircraft. And then we can't communicate with other units on the battlefield. And so there was that disconnect 
And so there, a lot of it had to rely on LNOs. So you had an LNO from the, uh, the special operators with us telling us, Hey, this is what my guys are saying. And then, you know, the time it takes, it's like playing the, the string phone game, right? It's going to take time to relay that message. Eventually, the sun started to come up and we had accountability of everyone that we figured we, we could get. I imagine that's why we started to exfil. When we needed to exfil, we needed to get all these people out. And so this starts the Mogadishu mile. I'm in a vehicle. I was not dismounted. I was a gunner in a Humvee. People that needed a ride, whoever they were, were hanging on to whatever platform they could to get out. It was controlled chaos at best. Mm. And so the vehicles looked like, you know, clown cars with everyone and anyone hanging on for dear life to just say, get me out of there and not like, get me out of here. Uh, you know, I'm going to hide. Like they were jumping on and they were continuing to engage everyone on that battlefield fought to the last bullet fought to the last breath. Um, and, and they really represented the spirit of the American soldier better than I've ever seen in my life. As we started to pull out, we're obviously still taking fire. We're still being engaged. And at that point, everyone's fairly low on ammunition, if not out. So they're fighting with everything they have available. Um, very resourceful use of engagement. It, you know, it, you had to do what you had to do. And we had to roll through the Bakara market, which was starting to open up. And people are walking out like, hey, it's, it's another day in Somalia. And they're coming to the market to shop for the day. Like nothing had just happened. Like we hadn't been in this historic battle for the past 18 hours. And I just remember like being dazed as we're rolling by looking at this. I'm, I'm, you know, we're shooting at people, you know, five feet before people are opening up and setting up a table outside a shop to sell meat sticks. You're like, what are they thinking? But they were just so used to the civil war, I believe as a mm -hmm. culture. As we start to roll out, there's not enough room in, in every vehicle for everybody. So there's there's soldiers that from task force ranger that have to have to go on foot and they're running um, and they're, they're running to the best of their ability because they're smoked. They have just been through hell and back. And so, you know, some the communication wasn't clear. I'm sure some of the vehicles started to separate and not stay as close to the dismounts. But that's where the term Mogadishu mile comes in and why it's so important, because these guys that were on the ground had to literally fight their way out, fend for themselves with nothing left. Eventually, we all reached the Pakistani stadium, which was a safe haven. And so we we pulled in there, we consolidated, reorganized, and then they started to bring the bodies in there. And we started to try to separate people to try and get full accountability because mm -hmm. we didn't have 100 percent clarity on men, weapons and equipment. This is NGBN-TV, a network for men and home to top experts, speakers, authors, and more. Streaming TV for men, created by men. But why? Why are we a network that inspires? Educates, entertains, celebrates, and supports. Men in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, simply to save men's lives. There is an epidemic in our community. And it's taking men from us. I'm talking about mental health and suicide. But we have an answer, and it's streaming, live shows, sports, concerts, and more. In a real way for men to lock shields. We can't wait to launch this TV network for you and with you. 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 Join our movement at ngbn.tv, coming January 2024. Um, hey, last thing on this, because I want to spend about our last 10 minutes talking about sort of the back half of it, but the movie, right? Because I always ask guys that are part of a real life thing that's then depicted later, how they do with it. I think they they did the best job that they could with the time limit that they had mm. in order to incorporate. Because you just described something that could be depicted in a five hour film. Sure, sure. Right? And, and that's what I'm saying. There are so many things that happen and so many significant events yeah. uh, that there's no way that someone would have been able to capture this in a two hour movie. I think they did okay. And I think what they showed accurately was the genuine fear of the younger soldier generation 
on the battlefield. They didn't display uh, an arrogant, um, you know, attitude in any way. Mm-hmm. And also displayed a very accurate depiction of how the uh, how the special operators acted. Mm-hmm. Um, extremely professional, extremely influential, and uh, and I'm grateful for every every one of them. That's amazing. Well, look, it's 1993. Vietnam's a long time ago at this point, and this is pre-global war on terror. So it's sandwiched into this very interesting time in sort of military history, which you guys have to go through. That piece of advice, right, you just talked about triggers you then after all this to seek more in your career, uh, end up as a Green Beret, uh, end up in the global war on terror, right, deployments to Afghanistan. And through all of that, your body and your brain takes, takes an absolute beating takes an absolute beating. And not only do you carry every thought and everything that's processed through that hellacious two days, right? Imagine just that those two days in your military career, what a man has to carry with him then for the rest of his days on his earth. But then you stack on top, right? Over 4,000 pressure blasts, jumping out of aircraft, all of that, man, that puts you in a tough way, right? And that, and that, and as, as it should. And so a huge focus that you've been talking about and wanting to focus on, which I completely understand is what does that transition look like? What does that look like for these guys? And what does that look like now for our warfighter who spent the last 20 years doing that? And it's not something we should shy away from. So I kind of give you the floor. I know you want to talk about task force dagger, these other things that you're doing, right? So just, 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 this is your chance, man, to, to talk about sort of that transition piece and sort of that third part of our story today. Yeah. So thanks, Brian. And, and the important piece of all of this is, you know, to the audience out there, there is so much to talk about. You know, we could talk literally for days about, you know, this experience or transition in itself. So I want to try and focus on the most important pieces. And an important thing is this needs to be a continuous conversation within our community of folks. And so what you're doing, Brian, by raising awareness and, and, uh, and hosting folks like me and Jeff Struker is really helpful to the community. And so I, I, I commend you and I thank you. Yep, honored. We talk about transition. Um, it's important to know that as historic as that battle was, and I'm grateful to have been there, it's almost bittersweet. Um, you know, October 3rd and 4th was a significant turning point in my life, um, but it needs to stay in October 3rd and 4th, and it needs to stay for my own mental health. It needs to stay in 1993. Mm. If continue to, to try and hang on to it today in 2023, I'm only doing myself harm. I can remember an important events like yesterday meeting with, with people that share that same experience as me is very important, but yesterday is over. Today will eventually end. And then tomorrow, October 5th, will be a new day when, guess what? I'm a husband and I'm a father. And I need to leave October 3rd and 4th in the past. Never forget, never forget the sacrifices that were made. But I feel like the primary struggle with most of the folks I see is they're trying to hang on to significant events like that from the past. It's very important that they're able to acknowledge it and then move on because part of Part of our nature is to learn from that mistake and then move forward. And we can't learn if we're continuing to hang on and relive it. And that's where there there is, there is plenty of our population out there that is hanging on to an event as you know, and I, I, I don't know what they feel, but they might feel the same as, as me or different than me. However they feel they need to acknowledge it and then move on. The, the transition process is so unique because people say, I got this. I can't wait to leave the military and do this and whatever it is. I want to hunt. I want to fish. I want to start my own business. I want to do that. The primary thing everyone talks about is find your purpose. Well, easier said than done. Yeah. One person that has given me full confidence in my abilities and one of my greatest mentors is he was my group CSM, Terry Peters. I owe him my life and then a good friend of mine, Matt Karras, who also worked with him, who was the deputy commander of third group too. Those, those two folks um, helped me with transition. And then my last little bit, my last year and a half, uh, I worked for General Fran Baudet at USASOC. 
And today I'm fortunate enough to call him uh, a very close friend because he also helped me with my transition. So when we, when we talk about transition, again, you can't go it alone. You have to surround yourself with people that make you better as a person. And they can't be, hey, remember that, that firefight? Mm. Let's relive that because that's where I was acknowledged. That's where yeah. I was. Yeah, you were. You were great, man. But that's in the past. What are you doing now? Because you still have value. You still have purpose. And you still have a reason to be here right now. And that's the biggest hurdle that, that I deal with daily. Who am I? Because I used to say a husband, a father, and a soldier. I'm no longer a soldier. That that cannot define me. That is not my identity. That was a job that I did, and I'm grateful for it. And I love the men and women with whom I served. And I will never forget the fallen. But I am I am a father and a husband now who likes to hunt, who likes to go on the boat with my family. And, and even now, I'm two years post-transition. I still struggle daily, Brian. I struggle daily to be like, is this really who I am? And I want everyone to know we all go through that and that's okay. But how I deal with it is I, I, I stay close to my circle of friends. I put priority with my wife and children where it should have been my entire military career. They've been neglected my entire military career and I won't do that again. I speak to people like you that understand. I help others because in a selfish way that helps me. I have mental disorders. I have mental health issues. Um, and I seek counseling on a regular basis for those. Hmm. I'm doing good because I wake up every day and I say, what's my purpose today? To love my wife and to be the best father I can to my children. That's my purpose. I don't have a purpose of wake up, be the best, you know, best soldier I can be prepared for combat anymore, you know? And so you, you have to, in a way, you have to find that peace within yourself. And it's tough. It's easier said than yeah. done. Try and say that to all these type A personalities that, that are way better than me in, in all, you know, in, in a lot of different ways. And they're going to say, hey, man, but I really like shooting and I really like doing this and, and no one's better than me. I guarantee you are the best at that. But I promise you, that is not your purpose in life. There's something so important in what you said. And it was a very simple sentence. You said, but that's OK. Right. You said I have mental disorders, I have mental health, but that's OK. The stigma of all this has to be dissolved, right? It's it's why we're having this conversation today. Yes, we want to take time, reflect on the two days, talk about the brave warriors that put life and limb on the line for the red, white, and blue and for their brothers that were on the battlefield. That's an important story to remember. But on the second half is all that that is carried. And whatever that trauma in your life could be, go back, listen, when I had Adam Davis on a few weeks ago, he doesn't have war trauma, he's got life trauma. You have, right? people are just carrying different stuff with them. And if you got something going on be, be, between the years, guess what? We all do. And that's okay. Absolutely. The part's got to come down first. That barrier to entry of, I got to put the shield up has to come down first. Yep. Absolutely. And, and I will say too, to the, to the audience, if you, if you struggle with that decision to figure out who you are and to kind of hang up the, the military aspect of your life, you are 100% in the right for thinking that way. Because every single one of us thinks that way. For 27 years, I did a job and I feel like I was really good at it. But guess what? The machine will keep on rolling. You should be grateful for that experience and know that you, you were there for a purpose. You influenced people, you saved lives, and I'm sure you did a phenomenal job. But that's in the past. Start the new chapter with a smile on your face because you know that you have a different purpose. And I'm not talking about from a religious standpoint. I'm not very religious. I admire what Jeff says, and he's right. Um, but from my perspective, it is just quality of life. My priority is quality of life now. And if I continue to hang on to the military aspect of my life, I'll never truly figure out the happiness I can have with my family. And, and again, if someone like me, who I think did, a, I think I did an okay job can, can say this in front of hundreds of people. I, you know, I think if, if you have any doubt and you just kind of reach out to me, reach out to someone like you, Brian, and talk, yeah. you'll realize that there's happiness on the other side. And the other thing is this, this is not a one and done. Mm. 
something that I will struggle with for the rest of my life. You just said every day, every day. And, but I acknowledge that. Uh, you say, I think you did pretty good. 27 year career, uh, green beret, uh, taught military mountaineering, uh, part of one of the, uh, most iconic battles in probably American history, sir. You've done, uh, extremely well. And your, uh, your clarity of thought now and strength of purpose in this sort of second half, right? Second half of the life is amazing. And that's what I was thrilled to share. Listen, man, is there anything else you want to, uh, tell us about, right? Anything that you're working on or that needs some love or needs some, uh, needs some time on the airwaves. What else do we need to know? I'll just leave it at this. And I left it with Brad borders at this too. Uh, I'm grateful for the people around me. Remember all of us as great as we think we are, we can't go through this alone. Hmm. And there's strength in numbers. We are pack mentality driven. That's right. You're it's, listen, you, you guys have heard me say multiple times on this show when we have conversations like this, Society would lead you to believe that men are supposed to be lone wolves and deal with things on their own. That's bullshit. <laughs> bullshit. Strong as a pack. We lock shields together. Leonidas takes 300 to battle thousands, right? Because they can lock together. Lock together. That's what we're doing here. That's why we're sharing these stories. That's why we're launching the stream and TV network at the end of this year at NGBN TV. Because men in their 40s, 50s, and 60s need to be able to lock shields together, work through what they got going on, and continue to move this thing forward because what happens when we get isolated as the lone wolf is men continue to do the one thing we can't reverse. There's one act you can do that we can't reverse. Too many men are doing it today because they get by themselves. So stop the lone wolf bullshit. We're done with that. We're not doing it anymore. Strengthen the pack. Hey, extremely well said, Brian. And, and one last final quote. Um, every one of us is successful because of the men and women that we surround ourselves with. Never forget that. Amen. Amazing. Jim, I'm so grateful for it to take the time. And I'll tell you this as we wrap, we really, our audience will lean in. They'll be like, yes, Brian, hundred percent. We do not take for granted what it takes for you to go back. Right. And recount that we really don't. And I say that often because I know I, I'm just, I, I am, I'm grateful, right. I'm grateful for what, for your thought process to go through it but then also to think about it from the clarity of where you're at today. Amazing conversation. And I hope we can come back and do more of these and talk more about what's going on in this, in this space. Cause I know you're just, you're just getting started on it. Yeah. Glad to help Brian. Thank you for reaching out. Absolutely. It's Jim Rooney. I'm Brian Jodis. That's been this incredible episode of pick up the six podcast. <laughs>